Welcome to ArcNet Sessions, episode 92. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week, we're doing another roundup of recent news stories. We'll be discussing Jean Nouvel's legal dispute against the Philharmonie for modifying his design, the AIA's posthumous gold medal awarded to Paul Revere Williams, and Big's recently unveiled design for a massive development in LA's downtown arts district. So, jumping right into it, Paul Revere Williams winning the gold medal. So he was an African-American architect in L.A., the first to join the AAA and be elected to the College of Fellows, died in 1980, designed over 2,000 buildings around L.A. and elsewhere, including icons like the LAX theme building, which has been pointed out many times, designed jointly with others and some dispute his involvement entirely, and the renovation of the Beverly Hills Hotel. So what say you guys about this topic? <laughs> Well, it's always a little bit contentious, right, when a an organization or a very well-known award gives out an award to the first of a certain demographic, because this is the first time that an African-American architect has won the gold medal. And then it's doubly of interest that he is also deceased, so that we have this first-time winner within this certain group being awarded posthumously and kind of what mood that kind of puts on the award overall. And personally, it's a little bit hard to distract from that aspect of the award. I have no doubt that Williams was absolutely deserving and does have a very impressive body of work, especially considering the context he was working in. There's an anecdote that has been getting floated around in the context of this news that Williams learned how to draw upside down to communicate with clients and other architects who refused to sit next to him because he was black, which is just kind of one of those insane stories of personal perseverance and talent in the midst of extreme discrimination and just outright racism. So that's amazing. That's impressive. That deserves to be awarded. It's just when one of these things happens and you're forced to consider like, well, what about all the other people who have been practicing today? Like who also deserve this medal, who also deserve some type of recognition for what they're practicing? That's where it kind of becomes a little bit it seems like an overtly political move by the AAA to do something like this when it is both a posthumous award and also of the first given to a certain demographic. It is overt, but I actually applaud that. And the same thing with the Julia Morgan Award from 2014. You know, I, I think that the AAA sort of said, you know, we didn't award these people when they were living and when we should have because of various built-in discriminations against people. And therefore, we're going to make up for it now. And I, I think they should be exactly that overt about it. Paul Revere Williams' work is amazing. It's beautiful. He did these houses in Palm Springs. He did one for Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. That's just awesome. I mean, so much of his work is incredible and hit the amount of work is incredible. But I also wonder if it was not to take away from how great the work is, but this sort of mid-century modern cool architecture is very hot and exciting right now. And I wonder if he came to the attention of the whoever, I don't even know, it's a jury that rewards this in part because of our appreciation now again of... Um, that kind of mid-century modern work, the fact that he's African-American and he's the first to win it. Yeah, I, again, like I said, I think that they should just be overt about it and say, we screwed up. We should have done this previously, but here it is now. Ken, what do you think? Well, I'm a bit cynical here. I mean, we were talking about Paul Revere Williams earlier this year on a thread mm -hmm. on Arconnect, and I was not familiar with his work. His work isn't really talked about in schools. What he, his experience wasn't really talked about in schools. I mean, it wasn't. So if I didn't know about it, him and his work and his experiences, it just, it's not taught in schools. It's not talked about. So I can almost imagine there's like this grid of names in the AIA's office going, let's see, this year we're going to tick off the, the woman grid. And <laughs> next year we're going to tick off the partner woman grid. And then the next year we're going to tick off the black grid. And then next year there'll be the first 
trans architect. Has there been a press release? Because I saw the piece on your site on Archonnect, but I wasn't sure if there was a press release to go along with it saying we failed in not acknowledging him sooner or, you know, something to, <laughs> in that regard saying, you know, because it does with all of the, the kowtowing and the genuflecting around Trump, you kind of want to know what was the process? When was this started? How did this happen? Is this just a reflection of the trying to court some, some goodwill going forward? Because I think to me, it's not enough that he gets this award. It should the, almost the entire convention in Orlando should be centered around the past three years and just about these. You know, I don't know how you do that, but it just seems like okay. Once we check these names off the list, we're going to move on to other things. It just I'm, that's how cynical I feel about the A at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Donna, I see your point that this was a a good call, and I do applaud the AIA for kind of retroactively acknowledging the talents of people that went missed due to kind of social biases during those times. But I think mm -hmm. once we open up these awards to everyone that living and dead, it kind of really complicates things. I think you know. How far back are we going to go? You know, I think that it might have been a good opportunity for the AIA to acknowledge the oversight of people like Paul Revere Williams and Julia Morgan in past awards and maybe created a new award that would just be a one-time award to acknowledge everybody that should have been given awards maybe in the past and kind of celebrate those people mm. that, that went missed and then just keep the gold medal award for uh, living architects. I don't know. It just seems to complicate things quite a bit in the sake of of making a statement. And it, in a way, it kind of comes across like we can't really think of anybody right now to give this award to. So let's kind of pick from the, uh, the obituaries. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel a little, I mean, I, I don't want to detract at all from like, it seems strange to be having these kinds of conversations in the kind of vibe of discussing someone who has deceased because it seems almost inherently disrespectful to be like, well, he doesn't deserve that award because there are tons of living people who are practicing and working really hard for it and, and their careers stand to benefit far more from a, an award such as this than his. And not to at all like discount any of the things that have been said about how important it is to recognize these kinds of figures and to go back as far as you can and as far as is possible to draw them up and, and shed important light on them and to bring them into the community. But I think that it really does like bring out an opportunity to do something that is distinguished from an award, something that is like the awards or these medals that can perhaps like be a thing that really helps someone's business and like encourages their reach in the world that they operate in. Then that can be kept to the award and, and the award can be kept to the living. And then some other certification and some other kind of honoring scenario is given towards those who are no longer living to kind of force them into the dialogue and bring them up in a way that does honor that memory and does honor that significance without kind of mixing it into the field of people who are otherwise competing for that very thing at the same time. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, look, you know, I'm looking at the press release in there. It doesn't even say racism. It doesn't even talk about the profession as a whole being racist. It just talks about his struggles very obliquely. So it doesn't even talk about that. I don't think that quote, that piece or that part that you cited, Amelia, is even listed in here. Exactly. And that's kind of like what I'm thinking needs to be more explicit. Like if you're going to make an award as kind of just a clearinghouse for all the stuff that you wish you would have done when you should have done it. Yes. Then it needs to be like that is basically an apologist move. It should be probably best framed as we want to make right on what we didn't do before. Right. And, and can I offer a good example of how you do that? Please do. The associate pastor in my church is gay. And for the longest time, the Lutherans would not recognize him 
given the full benefits of being a full pastor. The head of the Lutheran church in the Twin Cities, I think maybe in America, came and ordained him. And she did something that I never thought was ever going to happen. And it stunned everybody in the congregation. She talked about the failings of the Lutheran church. And she acknowledged the inherent homophobia. You know, it just talked about it and articulated, you know, not just apologizing, but here's where we failed. Here's where we're trying to make up for that. And here's where we're asking for your forgiveness. So I'm not saying that the AIA has to apologize, but at least kind of tell the truth because you risk mythologizing someone who's not here to represent who he was or who he'd be today. Because this is a man of a, of a generation, of uh, Jackie Robinson generation, who may have a different perspective on where we are today as a society than many of us have today. I don't know that. His, his relatives hopefully will be there to tell his story. But, you know, that's the gain you risk here is that you mythologize and try to position a person in a certain light that you have no knowledge of, but at least acknowledge your own failings and, you know, put out where we as an organization failed, you can kind of frame this a little bit better. And I just don't get the sense that they're doing it. They haven't gotten to that point yet. You're right. I don't think they're being that overt about it. I mean, I think everyone knows <laughs> that this is what AIA is doing with the awarding to Julia Morgan and to Denise, Scott Brown, and and now this one to Paul Revere Williams. I think everyone is fully aware that this is what they're doing, is trying to go back and make up for past mistakes. And no, they're not saying, yeah, we screwed up, but we have a long history of being a racist white old boys network, which it is. But again, everyone knows that. But I think at the AIA National Convention where Denise was awarded, they did very clearly say, as I recall, something, you know, to, along the lines of it was an oversight and we're glad things have changed so that now we can make this award. Maybe I'm putting a gilded coating on that because I remember it being a really important and wonderful moment. But, the, but then the other thing, Ken, to what you just said, you know, Paul Revere Williams was the first Black architect to win an FAIA. And so the AIA knows him and knows his work well. You know, he's been on their radar, at least, since I don't know when he was awarded the F. AIA, but you know, it's not like they had to really go digging deep to find this guy. His work is well known. He is well respected. Yeah. So and his work is beautiful. His work is beautiful. His oh work's God. amazing. And it crosses, I mean, you look at one project to the next, and you can't believe that they're done by the same person because, yeah. you know, when we're caught in like, you know, the worshiping that we have right now, you could pretty much pick out like every Stephen Hall project. You can line them up against the wall and you know exactly which ones are Stephen Hall's. You can't line up Paul Williams' work up against the wall and mix it up. They're very different. He really had a very good sense of understanding his client in a way that was respectful of them and didn't show the heavy handedness of the kind of the architect as sole author. <laughs> and it, that's what's so brilliant about his work. So do you think maybe that's a reason why it wasn't awarded previously? I, I mean, I'm just seriously asking the question, you know, is it that we have tended to award it to people who every single project looks alike? And then it's only now that we can say, oh, people that were maybe working in historical styles, but doing them quite well, because that's what Julia Morgan did. And part of her award was for construction techniques as well, because she also pioneered some construction techniques. So I don't know. I don't know what the AI was thinking. Well, William J. Bates from the AIA specifically noted that the recognition of uh, Paul Revere Williams demonstrates a significant shift in the equity for the profession and the institute. So, you know, that does acknowledge that's not an apology by any means, but it does acknowledge that that both the profession and the institute has kind of shifted its stance on equality. 
Which is interesting. They're trying. <laughs> no, it's just interesting given what we've gone through recently. Well, I think it's an opportunity to really kind of take that a little further and realize, you know, what changes should be made right now to avoid having to make these kind of retroactive decisions in the future. You know, I think this is a pretty common thing for large organizations and companies that are always kind of taking the safe approach to decision making, you know, to kind of follow the lead of, of society in making calls like, you know, these types of awards. And then retroactively, when society shifts to kind of take a step back and try to make it better. But, you know, as an organization like the AIA, which is leading the industry, well, as some may say, that's not a slam to <laughs> AA, but I can't speak for uh, the industry. You know, it should be taking a closer look because, you know, I think we're at a point in history where we know what's right and what's wrong. And now I think we're in a better place to make morally right decisions without having to kind of correct ourselves again in the future. So I think the fact that, you know, this whole AIA PR scandal happened within the same few weeks as this kind of retroactive kind of correction of previous decisions is interesting. I think we're always going to have to be, any organization like this, just by nature of its scale, is always going to have to be playing progressive catch-up when it comes to accommodating and really reflecting what we hope to be the more progressive aspects of society. And it's it's great that this happens at all, like eventually. I don't think they have to. I think they will. But having to is, I think, giving in to the idea that you need to fulfill the wishes of their membership rather than appointing decision makers that can make the call, you know, about what's right and what's not. It seems like we've definitely taken this news. It's impossible to separate it from what from the recent not my AIA controversy and kind of all the crap that that threw at AIA and put it very much into the public <laughs> discourse before this was awarded. So it's, it has definitely cast a more intense analysis and critical analysis on this award. And so my supreme apologies to the memory of Paul Revere Williams for not just talking about him and his work. But in that way, it is really important that we do consider these larger contextual issues and what the organization like AIA has as a responsibility to represent its architects and represent the future architects to be able to kind of point towards a better future for everybody. Totally agree, Amelia, that it's sad that this discussion is taking away from the discussion of the work. And if I can just put in a last word, maybe about the work itself, it's all incredibly elegant and proportioned perfectly. And that's something that I see so much, especially contemporary work right now, when people are doing sort of contemporary, modern, boxy kind of work. The proportions are just horrid. That's so common right now. I feel like those very basic sort of rules. And it says he was admitted to the Beaux-Arts Institute of Design. I don't really know what that is. But if he got some Beaux-Arts training, then he clearly learned proportion. And you can just see the elegance in all of the work. And again, whether, as Ken said, whether it's, you know, a sort of historic Moroccan looking house for a wealthy client or a, a small scale modern house for a, a middle class client, it's it just the proportions are perfect. And that's you know, that's the kind of delicate and nuanced understanding of the built world that I, I feel like we don't see as frequently anymore. So, yeah, it's amazing work. Really beautiful. And Agreed. the fact that he's able to do that kind of work at a time in history where there was so much oppression towards African-Americans is especially impressive. All right. Shall we move on to the next story in the news that has been uh, capturing the attention of, of readers and commenters around the architectural world? Speaking of buildings that are nuanced and elegantly proportioned, I, I'm not sure we're I'm not sure we're headed that direction right now. That's like okay, yeah, I'll let Paul introduce the full news story. But the words "elegantly proportioned" in the context of the project we're about to discuss is yeah. great, excellent, mm, great nah. framing device. So yeah, the next story that we're talking about is Jean Nouvel's court battle. Over the uh, Phil Harmonie, I'm 
just totally massacring the <laughs> pronunciation of that, but I'm not going to even attempt to say that <laughs> properly in the French way. So yeah, he's suing. Basically, he's claiming that the client did not follow his designs and modified the work, defiling the work, and has asked them to uh, restore the hall to the original plans. What was not included in our story was specifically what was changed. And from what I've found in my research, what was not done according to his design was the parapets, uh, foyers, facades, and the promenade and acoustical elements within the 2400-seat auditorium, claiming that the building is not finished, which does not necessarily address a lot of the criticism in the comments. But also, does it say to w what extent those are not finished or no, different from, from the original plans? From what I found, there aren't specific details published about the extent that they were modified or the extent at which it did not do the proper testing. Apparently, there were no acoustic testing. There was no acoustic testing done of the concert hall before opening. Well, Anyways. So maybe we just start first off, because we haven't discussed this project on the podcast. So maybe we just first air out any basic or immediate reactions to the project. Donna or Ken, you want to take the reins with that? I think actually Ken called it on our free recording discussion that uh, the sort of view that is making the rounds of the news right now, which is sort of a distant view where it looks like a, it, it kind of looks like a pile of dog poop is really unattractive. <laughs> but when you get close to it, honestly, the, the skin, the, the cladding is gorgeous. And that interior of the concert hall is, I think, absolutely beautiful. I think there is a lot that is beautiful about this building. But the one sort of image that's hitting the news is, of course, this very dramatic, weird looking object that has a whole lot of different skin textures and basket weaving and shapes and things jutting out. And it just it looks like a hot mess <laughs> from a distance. <laughs> well, I think it's a purely subjective thing. I kind of like it. I kind of like it because it is ugly in the way that, you know, I, I like it for the reasons that a lot of people are criticizing it. I guess it's different. It's different for sure. I mean, I think that the tile details are really nice. I think that the proportions are very awkward and clumsy and it's kind of kind of cool in that sense. In my opinion, you know, it's a very subjective call. I mean, this does not the design of this does not fit any kind of traditional kind of models of beauty. But yeah, personally, I, I don't think it's nearly as uh, horrendous as people say. <laughs> and if it is horrendous, it's horrendous in a good way. It does seem to definitely take the Disney concert hall logic to an extreme degree, which I am not trying to infer anything about Nouvelle's actual design process from that, but only that you have a concert hall. There is definitely a concert hall in that pile of poo. But then the pile of poo <laughs> is like this shiny, crazy mass of all these different visual elements. There's like the tessellating pattern of the birds, which is super cool, but also very strange um, to like just have plastered on a building and looks kind of like textually and also just atmospherically very out of place, but still very cool. And in the comments of the this post that we recently made on Archonnect, Mark Miller commented that the context of this, of the Philharmonie is indeed in Parc de la Villette, which has a very experimental design history as I'm sure all architects know. And so within that context, you can probably get, and also just within the French context, you can probably get away with a little bit more weirdness and a kind of abstract wackiness. And I think that what is overall hurting this project is just no matter how long your selfie stick is, you're not going to be able to like get any perspective on this that doesn't make it look like the perspective is looking up at a giant pile of poo. Because there <laughs> seems to be like the patio walk up, it requires like a kind of slight incline. So everything is taken at this like lower angle, or at least almost every single photo that I've seen is taken at this kind of lower angle looking up at it. And it's just simply not super flattering. I have to say, though, uh, there's been a lot of talk about it looking like a pile of poo. I think it kind of looks like a Martin Margiela jacket thrown on the ground, which is kind of the reason why I, I like it. I definitely don't see the poo thing. <laughs> <laughs> Once you see it, you cannot unsee it. So I will not wish that upon you. Ken, I think you have the like strongest words to share about this project. 
my strongest words are really, I mean, what photography has done for architecture has been <laughs> horrid. Interesting. It's been horrid. I've been a part of photo shoots for projects on seemingly, when I walk into the space, I'm going, this is the most insignificant space I've ever seen. Why are we photographing it? And through sheer photographing magic, have this space completely revealed to be something different in, a, in an image. And this building, I think, just shows that it you know, the facility of photography just fails at a distance. Because when you get close up, you see things that are very, very different than what you see at a distance. I can't even make out the building from a distance. So it doesn't even really begin to speak to me. I mean, buildings are about experience, not flat images. So when these people look at these images, I'm going, what the fuck are you talking about? I don't think it's necessarily just photography. It's also rendering. I mean, I think the problem is that buildings are experienced mostly by people looking at photos of it on the web. And the photos do not represent the real experience of being at the building. And that's just a problem that we've been having since buildings have been getting published. So the, the fact that we're talking about the story, though, is that it's being brought back up because Nouvelle has kind of refreshed his allegations against the Philharmonie for not following through on his designs and not simply that he wants them to recoup his losses or such, but that he actually wants them to change the design back to what he had originally intended. So he wants them to either open up construction again or just do whatever needs to happen to get everything changed. And apparently, as it goes into more depth in the post that we did on Arconnect about the French intellectual property law, that would make it pretty easy, supposedly, for Nouvelle to win the case that he does have the right to sue and that he would be winning the case just in over intellectual property. But he wouldn't necessarily get the right to have everything revert because that would be insanely expensive and way more money would be required for that than what could be reasonably attributed to the damages that he personally or professionally would have accumulated in the process. But because we are pointing to the fact and kind of attesting to the fact that the architectural photography is so important in communicating the overall project to the vast majority of people that will ever experience it or ever become familiar with it, and that those photographs can fail the project in a way that they kind of seem to have here. And that's not just because of crowdsourcing the photos, but it's like the actual, whatever the actual press photos were, just apparently haven't been enough to kind of win over the project. Whereas this can references like that can completely make the project, even if it doesn't exist. So I'm just wondering whether this is kind of going to be in the future of these kinds of cases also kind of promote the idea of the architect having some degree of intellectual property rights over the images of the projects and how they must be portrayed, like in media, portray in, in media portrayals, not just in the stuff that is coming out of the firm of how they, of whoever, whether they hire Ewan Bonn or Huffington Crow or whoever to come and photograph their building, but that they actually get more control over, say, the New York Times sends someone to photograph it or Le Monde or whoever, and what this kind of might do for that in the future. But I think it goes beyond actually how the buildings represent it, because you can't really control the, that representation. I think more to the point here, the problem is, is that when people think about Frank Gehry, the first thing they think about is his buildings leak. <laughs> he doesn't build the damn thing. He doesn't build it. And so is it his problem or the general contractor's problem? The failing here of this building is substantial. If you think about it from Jean Nouvelle's standpoint, if the sound doesn't work correctly because they didn't test the space or didn't complete the acoustical treatment of the space, then, you know, it's like, well, what the hell am I being hired for? So that can have a really serious effect on his future commissions for spaces like this. He's, he's done the Guthrie here in Twin Cities. I mean, he does these spaces. So, I mean, you know, I'm kind of on his side on this. I mean, like, wait a second. You should fix this space because 
you know, at the end of the day, if it doesn't work because of a design flaw, then that's one thing. If it doesn't work because you failed to finish the space, then that shouldn't reflect on me. And I think he's well within his rights to make sure that he's protected from future fallout because he's attached to something that is not what was intended to be built. You know, we don't have those kinds of laws here in the States. Frank Gehry can't go and sue MIT for saying all the stuff that they said about his building because it had nothing to do with his construction and he didn't build it. And allegedly, Jean Nouvel reminded the client multiple times for over three years before the building was open to do this testing and to ensure that certain issues were addressed before the completion of the building, which he claims they did not follow through with. So, I mean, if he has that proof, he definitely has a case. I'm definitely sympathetic to that as well, Ken. And yeah, as you say, Paul, he definitely has a case. If the building is not performing properly because they did not build it per his specifications, then he absolutely has a case. Yes. But my sense in doing the research before the recording today was that he's not being super clear about what it is that is not correct. And he's being a little vague. And in fact, what the court found was that he was being a little too vague for them to make a determination. I mean, there've been a few different suits and reversals of decisions previously made. So it's a very, it's a law process as complex as the building looks, Mm -hmm. let's say. It's interwoven (laughs) and confusing. And But I'm definitely sympathetic to the idea that, yeah, if he was saying, you have to do it this way so that the sound will work, and then they didn't do it that way and they rushed to open it anyway, and the sound isn't right, then he should be able to claim it is not his fault at all. What I found interesting from the, the link Amelia, that you posted in the article from a magazine, I guess, a a website called Lexology, is it um, the language that they use in the French courts? There's a what it sounds like what he's trying to do is to call up the copyright prerogative, which is called the right of paternity, which basically gives the designer the right to either claim or disclaim the building as his own or her own. And the fact that it's called the right of paternity oh, yeah, and makes you think of a, a you know, a, a, a man saying, no, that's not my baby. It just kind of grosses me out. It just, it squicks so me out so much. I really wish it was a different term. Maybe he can take this case to Maury Povich. Yes. <laughs> DNA test. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, yeah. You are not the father. You are not the father. (laughs) (laughs) But the the other funny phrase from that article was that, um, and I'm just going to quote from the article, French courts consider that the utilitarian aspect of a building ordered from an architect prohibits the latter from requesting absolute intangibility of his work. And the, the notion of a building being ordered from an architect, this is one of the places where law runs up against architecture in a way that's really confusing. Because I think any architect that you said to them, I, I need to order a building from you would just be offended. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear if any of our listeners also have had nothing perhaps to this scale, but any type of instance of their own practice where a project necessarily had to be changed, perhaps in ways that was not under contract, um, and how they felt either kind of impinged upon because their design was compromised or just simply on principle that they felt kind of compromised because the, the design was in any way different from what they intended and the client might have done some type of moves that weren't necessarily yeah within their preference. So if, if any of our listeners have dealt with that situation. And no matter how small of an instance before, we'd love to hear from you and kind of get some more background, especially if you're in the U.S. or not in the U.S., wherever you may be from, so we can get some kind of context for these issues and these conflicts. All the time. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, <laughs> but, maybe we should ask if any architects out there well, have I should, actually I should, had a project be completed as I should, they planned. <laughs> I should preface with like clear legal backup, as in like you had a contract that said this and this and this exact design has to be met. And then something quite drastic happened in the case of it not being done that way. And you went to court about it. 
that would be my preference, oh. that there would actually be some legal yeah. okay. discourse uh, <laughs> to back it up. I would think in the U.S. that's common around like code issues where a, an architect says, no, you can't build it that way. That doesn't meet code. And the contractor or the owner go ahead and do it anyway. But what's interesting and, and I'll say foreign to me about this case is that it's over aesthetics. And I don't think that's very common in right. the U.S. to exactly. have it be over more aesthetic aspects of the building mm-hmm. rather than functional or code. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. He's, I think that's where, where the one linchpin in his argument that I really resonated with me. I mean, a space that was supposed to have music in it, really, yeah. I mean, if yeah. it fails, it's critical. I mean, what's the building for? It's not, the skin is secondary to me at this point. I mean, I go for that space, as good as it looks, doesn't work. And he told him that you have to have this done. And they didn't, to me, that to me is the biggest, I mean, it's as important as the code issue, because I mean, what if nobody goes, the building fails, nobody shows up, it becomes the you know the American center in in Paris, and, and nobody actually goes to it. So it, that's a big deal. So complex building, complex case. Yes, it's- and it's been raging for a while. So we'll keep you guys updated as the case progresses. All right, shall we move on to our last item of discussion today, which happens to be. <laughs> Which is a little bit closer to home when it comes Who's to... Who's taking this? Amelia, you're presenting this one? Yes, I'm going to exhale the this one. This happens to do with the giant development proposed by Bjarke Ingels Group coming to Los Angeles's Arts District, perhaps coming to LA's Arts District. The project, which is known as 670 Mesquite, named for the street that it is on, is going to be a giant 800,000 square feet of office space with two boutique hotels, 250 rental units, and a bunch of restaurants and shops, as well as a handout of 41 affordable units. And we really want to draw attention first to the context that this development is being proposed in. It's going to be more or less right up against the LA River in LA's Arts District, but also buttressing a rail yard, which is active and runs right next to the river. So it would be LA River, rail yard, Bjarke Ingels Development, rest of Arts District. And I should also say that the Herzog and de Marone project, 6AM, which we reported on a week or so ago, is also very much in that neighborhood about just a few blocks northwest of this proposal. So there's a lot of things going on here. Nicholas Cordry, in his write-up of the project, related it back to the plug-in city concept, except without any, I forget exactly how he posed it, but just basically without any of the actual social activism commentary, <laughs> just like it yeah. looks yeah. kind of like that. It looks like it could be referencing that, but that it does rely on these somewhat transformable unit design of these giant concrete shells that can be somewhat modified with these glass cubes that fit into them so that that theoretically tenants could choose to keep these big studio spaces or cut them up a little bit more discriminately with different platforms and such and customize them to their heart's content. This also is very close to SciArc, I should say, in the Arts District and also very close to Michael Maltzen's One Santa Fe project. And the Arts District in LA is just a huge developmental honeypot at this point where a bunch of people are <laughs> rushing in to develop in it as well as get everything kind of filed away before this very significant ballot measure gets voted on in March in LA, which could prevent a lot of the more flexible developmental practices that have been happening in LA because of the stupid, <laughs> very stupidly complicated planning codes that make a lot of spot zoning happen and are necessary to get a lot of things built and a lot of be people are angry about. So it's a very contentious time, really exciting. But this huge project, as proposed by Big in the Arts District, is kind of just bringing in all of these elements at once, especially because it is also right on the LA River. We have all this LA River development happening and, and proposals with under Gary's office. And it also happens to be right across the street or right across the river from Boyle Heights, where we've been seeing a lot of anti-gentrification activism taking place and, and kind of galvanizing into the rest of LA. 
So there's a lot to discuss here, but I don't know, maybe just first first reactions to the individual from you guys about the actual design or perhaps like what kind of stood out to you. Is this near the airport? No, <laughs> no, no okay, definitely not. not. It's very close to downtown. The Arts District is just southeast of downtown. It's in an area that when CyArk moved into this area 15 years ago, there was literally nothing going on. It was just like a, it was like a ghost town, like industrial uh, warehouse part of downtown, which I mean, downtown in general back then was really kind of desolate. But now it's like the hottest part of L.A. Mm -hmm. And it should be said that the project that Bjarke Ingels is proposing is going to go into an old like cooling, like a refrigeration hold. So it's all, all these industrial buildings that were basically just there to like keep cold food deliveries cold until they got sent on the next truck. And downtown L.A. is full of these places, very buttressed directly up against this kind of luxury development that is also happening, creating a really strange but really active development scene. Why does it seem very thin? I mean, isn't California, doesn't California have seismic issues? I mean, the frame just looks very thin and like I just picture a It lot. does. That's what I thought too, but I think it's an optical illusion because each of those blocks is like 45 feet. Yeah, they look, they, the column for concrete, for precast concrete, and on the thread I posted an image of Kevin Roche's Cummins headquarters with a concrete gridded arcade that is incredibly beautiful, but the thickness, the slenderness ratio of those columns being out of concrete, it looks incredibly thin to me. Maybe there's some kind of secondary structure that is not visible from the outside. I don't know. But yeah, that, that is true. You guys are the architects. <laughs> That's an insult. <laughs> so I grew up in the 70s. When I grew up, there was always in our refrigerator a box of wine. <laughs> it was the 70s. It was right there. And this is by the Gallo family. And I swear it was a box of Gallo wine constantly in our refrigerator. And I can't find any images on... Uh, I'm trying to look in the Wayback Machine and see there's got to be images of these 1970s Gallo boxes. I swear I can picture them. So I looked at this, yeah, and thought, oh, it's a bunch of Gallo boxes of wine <laughs> stacked up. Cubes, you know, wine cubes with a little spout at the bottom. I think this is a cool looking building. I don't really understand the urbanistic sighting of it. Is it something that's going to connect the rail yards and the river and the arts district or is it going to divide those things? That's one of the most kind of contentious and ambitious parts of the project is that it's proposing this so-called deck that would stretch from the development over the train tracks next to it and then connect with the river somehow. And how exactly that would happen is going to involve a lot of different agencies. It would be a really complicated procedure and urbanistically be really interesting because of all the things happening on the river in terms of large scale development and the master plan, but also because the site being so huge, nearly it runs between two bridges that cross the river, the Sixth Street Bridge, which is being redeveloped by Michael Maltzen, which is currently under construction, and the Seventh Street Bridge. And so having that kind of extra framing to it could really create what, of course, people then immediately think of as being something like the High Line and taking this industrialized space, building up on it a little bit, adding some landscaping, and then connecting it between two different nodes to create these kinds of open space in an otherwise soon to be very packed and kind of rough, rougher urban context, because the Arts District really does not have any parks or major open green spaces. So that is one of the kind of cherries, a very complicated but very tantalizing cherry that is kind of being floated as a part of the project, as well as to kind of open it up urbanistically to have more public space. They've also mentioned it might include a public sculpture park and a small museum, <laughs> whatever that means. I mean, it's the Arts District, right? So they have to have like some kind of patent. Yeah, okay, art, why not? Sculpture park, <laughs> sure. The fact that LA even calls it the Arts District is pretty lame. I mean, come on. 
this is where all the arts are. <laughs> if you there, want to know were, where the arts are. There were arts there for like, you know, a couple months. There are, I mean, there still are artists there. There's, there's art happening there. It, it's just like in no way exclusive to that area of LA. And there's also, I mean, basically what makes this project so interesting to me is that there is so much happening in that area to propose something so complex and so big and so interconnected with all these other issues. Inevitably, even if like just 1% of it happens, it still could be quite interesting. And of course, having a Bjarka investment right next to a Herzog and Demerone investment is going to be a really huge game changer for the area and probably bring in a lot more architects of that level. Wow. Sounds scary. Sounds dystopian. It does sound scary. As I heard myself saying that, I was like, oh, wait, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the funny thing, right? The Trump's wall got moved. How many miles is L.A. from uh, Mexico border? I mean, so the wall got moved, you know, upstate a little bit from the California-Mexico border. I mean, why <laughs> why are we trying to pass this off as, you know, when, whenever I hear, oh, it's got 41 affordable housing units, just call it slave quarters. Just got 41 <laughs> oh, slave <stop>. quarters. <laughs> Got 41 slave quarters. Servants quarters. Come on. No, no, we're going to call it what it is. I mean, look, we've got, we were talking about last week about how cities are gentrifying and squashing DIY spaces where the cities are leveraging the cultural capital and and the, the creative capital that exists to the benefit of not the communities that are building that, those things, but to, you know, the people who rely on that tax base. So, and it's never, those services are never getting passed down to create living and working in spaces to serve those people who are actually responsible for that development. And so we have these places and we're building these things. We got Demiron, we got Gary, we got, you know, Bjarka, and we're building all these things to leverage what? It's not to the benefit of that community because that community doesn't need it. I mean, it's to the benefit of the city and to the increase in tourism and the increase of the, 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 the money that comes in from outside of the state, outside of the country and to future investment. But, you know, to, to whose benefit? And, and this is certainly not to anyone's benefit that really matters. And this is it's troubling. It does seem to all the folks who are righteously quite nervous about what the overall development on the river will bring in terms of residential opportunities along it. This does not seem to be a big reassurance. Putting 30 stories right next to the river and literally like so that residents of Boyle Heights can stare straight into those plug-in glass wine cubes. It's definitely <laughs> right now. If everything stays the same, of course, in that context, it does look very, very bad in that level. This is trickle-down architecture. <laughs> I mean, this is what it is. I mean, you look up and the urine-soaked towers of Bjarka will rain down the golden showers of, of capitalism on to unwashed masses for what? So and LA just, can have a high line. We need a high line. Come on. Everyone needs a high line, man. Everyone needs a high line. <laughs> I just think this is definitely something that we're going to, now that it's here. It's going to happen. Right. It's, it's hard to imagine that some version of it won't happen, but also that really, truly how it will set a precedent for what other developments, whether it will, because it very much seems like it will, and how that precedent will be set for other developments in context with the LA Rivers redevelopment. That's kind of, I think, going to be one of the most difficult things to watch happen. Well, Amelia, like you said, it sounds like they're sort of rushing this in and rushing several projects in to try to get them in under this deadline of the uh, of the zoning spot variance. What you call it? The the, the variance is one of changing. the major criticisms of L.A. development is that a lot of it happens in these kind of backdoor dealings where the city grants a lot of variances to the developers to kind of work around the zoning code because the zoning code is so crazy. So people who are opposed to these so-called backdoor dealings are trying to get this measure passed that will basically put a complete stop 
on development until the zoning code is fixed. We talked about that on the podcast briefly, and I feel like I'm understanding it better now as time is going by and I'm hearing more about it. But that's just, it's kind of fascinating to me that it makes me think that maybe it's bubble, sort of bubble related that we're, you know, all these things are going to get rushed in right now and then they could get, I mean, if this, let's imagine this got halfway done and then the financing ran out, it would be beautiful in that state, don't you think? <laughs> you know, truly the, the plug in. Grow we'll plug it in later. The, yeah, <laughs> it'd be truly plug in. Exactly. Ken, what did you want to add to that? No, I, I just I did an interview today regarding my connection with the um, the Safer Spaces uh, initiative. You know, the one thing that was pretty apparent to me is that the cities are altogether too happy to kind of leverage these people, but not caring anything as much as they should when it matters. And this is where, you know, money means more than people's lives. And it's just really, it's, it's just sad, you know, that we're a part of this kind of effort and, you know, we should take a hard look at ourselves and figure out if we, this is really what we want. I'm sympathetic to that, but I also am kind of the area in which this is developing, having it be yes, so-called in the arts district, but really just taking over former industrial property. It is much needed in LA to have more residential development. And if we can use the space to really, truly create something that has a vibrant public aspect that people actually can use, LA is so in need of that. And downtown is really set on a precipice to do a lot of really interesting stuff in the next 10 years. So I'm trying to be as optimistic about this as possible, even though it is such a huge thing that, it, yes, it's hard not to read it as some kind of just overt money-making scheme. Yeah. Anyone else have final thoughts on this project? I'm ready for a glass of wine. <laughs> Or a box of wine, a cube of wine. Or a box of wine. I don't care where it comes from. <laughs> okay, so I guess that's the news for this week, or at least the news that we've decided to talk about. There's a lot of other stories on, on our connect that are getting a lot of attention and commentary. Can I uh, interrupt for just a second and bring back something we used to do, which was endorsements? Yes, please. Absolutely. So last Saturday, I spent the day in Columbus, Indiana, and saw presentations by artists or designers and 10 different firms competing for five different sites for the Columbus exhibit project that will happen next summer. And uh, it was a great day. And the jury was there. Amanda Levitt was on the jury along with, oh, no, I'm forgetting Jennifer's name, but she's a curator at SFMOMA. And uh, the announcement of who won won't be for another month yet, but we I will be sure to try to get a uh, preview into who the winners are if I possibly can, because I know a lot of people involved in it. So um, I would just say that the presentations were fantastic. I put a lot of them up on my Twitter feed. But when the Exhibit Columbus seminar symposium was actually going on, I was tweeting from Arcanex Twitter feed and I just did not get it together to, to do that last Saturday. So I'm sorry about that. I wish I had. But it, it'll be exciting to see who the uh, who the winners are in a month or so. Cool. Thanks, Anna. Does anyone else have an endorsement? Everything. I endorse it all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we could nothing. <laughs> nothing. That's our yin yang experience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The yin yang of the uh, of the building design, right? Exactly. Okay, so that'll do it for this week. Thanks to everyone out there listening to us. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcNext Sessions. And you can also send us an email to connect at arcnect.com. And uh, if you enjoy the podcast please consider rating us on iTunes. It helps us understand what people like and what they don't. If you don't like it, don't, you know, send us an email or something. Don't post on <laughs> iTunes. Speaking of our other podcast, One to One, there was a really great interview published on Monday this week with Yvonne Farrell. Yvonne Farrell from Crafton. As those of you who follow Arconnect know, they designed the UTech campus in Lima, Peru, which won the inaugural Reba International Prize. I uh, had the uh, pleasure of visiting that building when I was in Lima 
I think about a year and a half ago, right as they were finishing it. And it was pretty, uh, pretty stunning structure. But it was really interesting listening to Yvonne's description of the design and the process that went behind it. And uh, so check that out. And um, do we have a one-to-one coming up next week? We do. This is something of a special year-end one-to-one. Um, it's a little bit different from what we usually do. Instead of featuring a single interview, um, kind of to round things off for this crazy year and to look forward to the big stuff that is going to happen in 2017, I went to a psychic to ask who's going to win the 2017 Pritzker. And she told me almost exactly who it will be. Uh, I was astounded. I had never been to a psychic, probably never will again, but did not expect any specificity about anything. But she told me some very interesting stuff. It was all in the cards. And so we're going to have a special episode next week that kind of runs through that experience and ends with a very potent prediction as to who it will be. All right. So if if you want to know who wins the 2017 (laughs) Pritzker, tune in on Monday. Mm. I can't wait. (laughs) I'm going to keep you in suspense. I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Talk to everybody next week. Thanks, guys.